Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast Ryan Perfnick. Ryan is a Managing Vice President of Cook Myocyte. And Ryan and his colleagues have taken some University of Pittsburgh technology and moved it along the road to clinical implementation. Ryan, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. So as I mentioned, back in 2002, there was some work that came out of the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Johnny Ewart and his colleagues, in terms of technique for stress-induced urinary incontinence. So let's walk that road a little bit and talk about the steps necessary to move things into the clinical practice. Yeah, back in the mid to late 90s when I joined Dr. Ewart's lab, the group was really focused on a disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a terrible disorder that when you have a deficient dystrophin protein, it breaks down your muscles, and eventually that's what leads to early death. So what we were looking at was trying to use combinations of cell therapy, using muscle cells and gene therapy, and seeing if we could come up with a treatment for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So there was a lot of great work that was going on through that research, and Really what resulted in that was a core technology of taking muscle biopsies, and again, we were still doing animal work at that time, of course, and taking those biopsies and selecting specific muscle cells out of that through proprietary techniques. And then once we were able to routinely isolate those muscle cell populations, we were able to start not only thinking about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we were able to start looking at potential other applications where some type of regenerative healing process could take place. So as the research went on and we had more publications and started branching out into other areas like orthopedics and cardiac disorders, there was a urologist that previously had joined UPMC, Dr. Michael Chancellor, and he always had this dream of using regenerative medicine for his urological applications. Some meetings led to more meetings and some discussions led to more discussions. And then a collaboration formed between Johnny Uard and Michael Chancellor, and we literally had labs across the street. Fifth Avenue was in between the two labs. So I was a technician in Dr. Uard's lab at that time, and what was such a great setup about that collaboration and, and all the people that were working towards it was you had on one side of Fifth Avenue, we were the cell biology lab, and we were, again, working through those isolation properties and seeing what those cells could do in vitro. And then on the other side, where the urology group was set up, they were really building clinical applications to see, hey, if we had that tool for general medicine healing, this is how we would demonstrate that it actually worked. So bringing that all together, one lab was producing the tools and the other lab was producing the application. And then once we started working together more often, we bridged the two ideas together, did a lot of great work, a lot of great publications, and caught the eye and the attention of Cook Medical, who was more strictly a medical device company out of Bloomington, Indiana, but they wanted to get into regenerative medicine, so uh, also another funny story about how they all met. And so that technology was born. The Cook company came along, and again, through lots of conversations and lots of discussions about where we could take this on the commercial side of it, 
Cook eventually licensed the technology from the University of Pittsburgh, and then they formed Cook Myosite, and then they hired me to be the first employee to see if we could get it off the ground and get it running. So what point was the technology licensed? Around 2002, right? I would say around 2001 and into 2002 because Myosite's first day was May 1st, 2002. So how many years did it take from that point to get to the point that this was a clinically available procedure? When we say clinically available, we're only talking about in clinical trials, and that's still the state that we're in right now, believe it or not, all these years later. Well, we're proud to say that we started on May 1st, 2002, like I said, and at that time all we had was a computer and a telephone. We didn't even have a lab. We just had me trying to order a lot of equipment, help make plans that we would eventually lease space from the McGowan Institute and build a small staff. So from that point in May of 2002, we treated our first patient in December of 2004. And can you speak a little bit about the results of the clinical studies? While the technology has potential for a lot of different areas, because our research was really focused on a couple core applications, we decided instead of trying to do too much too soon, that we would really only focus on a few areas. The first area that we focused on, which we had a lot of great preclinical data on, was what would become an application for stress urinary incontinence in women. And what we're really talking about here is taking a muscle biopsy from patients and then applying those principles of isolating cells, which by the way, had to be modified once we got into the human tissue, and that's really where Cookmyosite came in. But, but taking those cell populations and then working with urologists and urogynecologists after we do the manufacturing and the quality control testing and quality approval, we ship those frozen cells back to the physician where then he or she saws those cells, dilutes them in saline, and injects them right into the muscle structure that's really in charge of controlling continence near the bladder. And the idea then is, like we said, to restore continence by strengthening those muscles that are not working as well as they used to. Those were the early days, and, and honestly, John, it was a lot of fun because there was really no blueprint for any of this. So we had to quite literally go find a way to take a muscle biopsy. We had to find a way to ship the tissue and make sure that it would not degrade over time during shipment. We had to find a way to then do the manufacturing and build the quality system so that we could do it consistently and safely. We had to find a way to then ship it back to the physicians and then find a way to inject them and do all the training and try to standardize the process and then try to make heads or tails out of the clinical data. So the first study that we did, we actually applied to the FDA and to Health Canada at the same time. And... Health Canada gave us the approval to move forward for a first-in-man study where the FDA wanted us to do some additional toxicology studies. So there was a stagger there and when we started in U.S. versus Canada. But that first study was eight patients. It was done in Toronto, and we found a physician, Dr. Leslie Carr, who believed in the idea enough in the technology or the potential of the technology that she was the first physician to do this. So, again, as a urologist, she's not trained on taking muscle biopsies, so we had to teach her the technique, and then we showed her what we were thinking about the injection side, and through those collaborations, we built an injection model as well. That first study, like I said, was eight patients, 
and was really about feasibility. Everything we do is about safety. So we were really looking at, can we do this process in a safe way? Can we do it routinely? Can we get the products back to the patient? And then we look for results. And I'm happy to say, even with all those unknowns and all those variables, we saw improvement in five out of those eight women for the parameters that we were looking at. So that was the first study. And then we said, okay, well, now we're starting to get a little bit of signal. Let's start looking at the dose. So we looked at the dose. We also looked at modifying our injection technique because one of the things that are really special about these cells, and it it actually helps make them safe, even though it's more work on our end, is wherever you inject these cells, that's where they land. They don't really migrate anywhere. So we really had to build an impressive system to routinely be able to inject into the target location every time and not make it so complicated that years down the line, only select hospitals in the world were able to do this. So it was uh, striking a balance between making it simple enough that everybody could use it, but also consistent enough that it works very well. So a lot of work went into that part. But once we started nailing down the injection technique, then we started looking at different doses because, again, this was never really done anywhere. So we didn't know what the right number of cells were. So we conducted a series of clinical investigations in Canada, and and then we got going in the U.S. as well. And we looked at some very small doses, and we kept doing dose incremental increases, and then finally got to a dose that we started to observe was really what we felt was the sweet spot between what we can consistently manufacture, and also we were seeing some good results in terms of efficacy. So that's an interesting pathway in terms of getting to where you are. So where are you today? So we did all that work, and those were what we were calling phase one, phase two studies. We didn't have healthy patients into the study. So they really jumped into phase two studies. But we also had to keep refining who this was going to work for. And if you look at the tagline, this is personalized regenerative medicine. So We are making a single product for a single person. So we really have to identify who are the absolute best people that would benefit from a type of technology like this. So a lot of the work over the ensuing years, on the clinical side of it anyways, was analyzing all the data, looking at the different patients who didn't respond at all, responded to some degree, responded very well, and trying to tease out who they were and then figure out why those people were responders or not responders. And then once we zone in on who we think the right people were, the right dose, and then the other part of it is you have to figure out how to measure all this, so what constitutes a success. And then on top of that, the FDA was pushing us towards doing placebo-controlled. So long story short, where we have been for the last Uh, let's say since 2013, is we've been conducting two FDA-driven double-blind placebo-controlled studies for all those parameters that we've been testing. And really now we want to demonstrate that we believe that we have the right patient population, that we have the right dose, and that we have the right measurements that we could really say that against a placebo that this technology is working for these particular patients. And when will these trials be concluded? Basically, the first one is finalized except for a few follow-ups. And the other thing about these studies is they're fairly long studies, so 
we do the treatment and then we follow them out for a year and then get our primary endpoint and then we follow them out for another year mostly for safety so not only are these long studies they're actually pretty difficult to recruit for so the first study has taken about six years we've learned a lot so we're hoping the next study is going to take about three years and we're targeting a submission to not only to the FDA but to other global regulatory authorities somewhere in the neighborhood of end of 2022 or 2023. Well, a long pathway. Yeah, it's a real long pathway, but the other thing to keep in mind is what I've just been talking about is the clinical side of it, but the majority of our staff is actually geared towards building the manufacturing side of it. So, again, we started off with really a small lab that we were leasing space, and then when we got a little bit of clinical data to support keep going with this, Cook authorized the purchase of a new facility in Blonox in our IDC Park where we are now. And that facility we got around, what was that, around 2007, we moved in around there. And that has really served as what we're calling our developmental facility. So we are manufacturing products that are going into human beings. And that served us well, and it's a really great facility, but it was never really intended to be the facility that we're going to produce commercial products from. So the other thing that we're really busy at work doing is we purchased a building right across the street, actually, and we've been building towards this facility as our commercial manufacturing facility. And what that is doing is it's giving us extra capacity expansion, we're doing all the steps, all the qualifications, validations, so that one day when we invite the FDA or the European Medicines Agency or Japan's PMBA, whoever it might be, they're going to come to this facility. They're going to look at all of our qualification, all the steps we've taken, and hopefully give us their blessing and license to be able to commercially sell these products. You have the path of the clinical where you have to prove that the technology is working. You have the path that... You could do the manufacturing in a safe and consistent way and that the product is efficacious. And then the third piece of it that we've been busy with is building the commercial marketing and sales model so that when we do all this work, we could actually go out there and start selling the product and go from the clinical development side to commercial sales. You talk about products, plural, and I know you've done some work in other areas. Can you share some of the other applications you're sure. exploring? You're right. I would say it's a product, but with potential for different applications. So we're, we're hoping that once we get our license to sell for one application, then the life cycle time for the other indications will be much shorter because then we could just focus on the clinical side. But we're also really excited about those indications. Basically, we have, I would say, three solid leads and potentially a fourth one. And... We've been doing a study for several years on fecal incontinence in men and women, and it's a similar concept. Instead of trying to build up the urethral sphincter, we are trying to build up the anal sphincter so they could also restore continence in those patients. We have an indication that actually was part of the original research back at the University of Pittsburgh, and that was for a disease called underactive bladder. And for underactive bladder, the bladder is actually dysfunctional, so when it's time to release the urine, 
those muscles can't contract in the bladder and they're not able to get the urine out. So those patients are often having to catheterize themselves. So our idea there is can we take those same muscle cells and then implant them into the walls of the bladder, into those muscles, and rebuild the function of the bladder. So that's really exciting. We have that going on. We have a study going for male stress urinary incontinence, again, very similar to the female, other than the anatomy is a little bit different. And then the last one is a study that we're doing with a single site in California. It's a physician-sponsored study, and that is for tongue dysphagia. So people that have a swallowing disorder, and the majority of those patients are somebody who had some kind of tongue cancer or cancer that was resected from the tongue, which left behind a damage to that tissue. So same thing, we're trying to take those cells from a different body part and then implant them into the tongue so that they could restore not only the swallowing function, but also they lost their ability to speak in any way to be able to restore that function as well. So, Ryan, in addition to these studies, do you have some work in cardiac issues as well? The answer is we did. We ran two studies also in Canada, and we got some interesting results. But what we decided ultimately was we weren't sure that the cells were best suited for these types of applications. And also, just to be quite honest, we didn't have the know-how to drive it on the clinical path. So we decided to put an indefinite hold on that program. It may be something that we revisit in the future, but at this time we don't have any immediate attention to return to the cardiac applications. I think one thing that's exciting about the company, and I don't know if this was noticed at all, but all those years that I was telling you about in the early days when we were developing a lot of that, the first five years we had five people, and then the next five years we hovered around 20 to to 50 people But in the last two years, we've created close to 100 jobs in our area that we've hired on. So now our staff is around 170 people. So we're really proud about all the people that we brought in, the capabilities that we have, and we're really excited about the things we could do going forward. Congratulations. You've done some pioneering work, and the results are beginning to show for all the hard work that you've invested. So, Ryan, thank you for joining us today and sharing with us the work you've done to move technology from the laboratory into the clinic. We thank you for your contributions, and we look forward to the results that become available clinically in the future. For our listeners, welcome your suggestions in terms of podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank the McGowan Institute that sponsors this podcast series. Until we join you again, best wishes to all our listeners.